no matter how pure and noble the desires and intentions are behind making New Year's resolutions, whether those resolutions and goals are minor or major, more often than not, it only results in futility and frustration and failure. Don't you think? Why? Why, no matter how noble our goals, no matter how determined we are every December 31st and and January 1st, why does it never seem to work? Why can't we resolve and then follow through? Why can't those commitments end up becoming realities? It's because people don't change by making New Year's resolutions. They change by being made new creations. That's how change is possible. That's how change happens. People don't change by making New Year's resolutions. They change by being made new creations. And that's one of the greatest promises in all the Bible. And it is a promise. Being made a new creation. Not only is it possible, it's a promised reality. And it's one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 gives us that promise. Paul there says, Therefore, if anyone, that's good news right away, if anyone, that means you're not excluded from that. If anyone is in Christ, there's the qualifier. That's what everything depends on. In Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things, all of those old things that we would be here for a very long time indeed, listing all those old things that you write down on a list if you make a New Year's resolution that you want to resolve to change, to stop doing, to do better. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Isn't that great news? Isn't that a great promise? And a great reality. That's what we're going to be talking about in this series. Being made new. The new coming. The new creation in all of its aspects and forms. What God makes new. That's the name of this series that we're starting today. What God makes new. And we're going to look at that. We're going to look at very specific things. Four significant new things that God promises and provides for every single believer. So if you're in Christ today, if He is your Lord and Savior, the really great news for you is change is possible. Newness is not just possible. It's what is already guaranteed for your life. It's what's been given. We're going to be seeing those uh, significant things, those new things that God promises and provides for every single believer. We're going to start by seeing today, how He gives us a new heart and a new spirit. And from that, everything else flows. A new heart and a new spirit. When He makes us a new creation in Christ, He gives us a new heart and a new spirit. I would invite you to look at your copy of God's Word in Ezekiel chapter 36. That's where we'll start off. Ezekiel 36 and verse 26. Ezekiel 36, 26. This is uh, God's promise to His people through the prophet Ezekiel that 
after the judgment, after the exile, which uh, is a guaranteed reality. Nothing's going to stop that or prevent that. It's a done deal. Uh, they, they've been exiled. They're, they're being judged. God is using the difficulty in their life and in the nation to bring them back to Himself. And He promises that they will be brought back. He will restore Israel. And when they turn back to Him, when He restores them, when they come back even to their, their land, He says this, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. We all have the, the tendency and really the default to have very stony soil in our hearts. Very stony soil. And some of you, maybe more than others, are more prone to that stony, rocky disposition. You're stubborn. <laughs> and you get told how stubborn you are by those significant people in your lives that recognize the stoniness and are hurt by the sharpness of the stoniness of your life. Right? Can you relate to that? Of course you can. So can I. We all have this tendency and this default naturally to be very stony. We're not naturally malleable. We're not naturally soft. We're not naturally shapeable and, and moldable. We have very stony soil in our hearts, in our minds, in our, in our spirit. We, we want to be rooted in our own way. We want to be anchored to our own way of doing things and our own way of living. And we do that very, very well. We build entire lives on the stones of our own heart. We don't budge. We don't bend. We don't move. Not only are we stubborn in that sense of, of the stoniness of our heart and of our, our soil, but there's another dimension of that stoniness that uh, I want you to think about. I want you to think about, a, think about the monuments that you might see in, in D.C. or famous uh, statues like the statue of David that's carved out of that marble slab. Um, we have another aspect of our stoniness that is equally as problematic. And that is that we build on the, the stone of our own life rather than building on the rock of who Jesus is. We have a tendency to raise up big stone monuments to our own greatness and to our own glory. So on one hand, we're stoning the sense of being stubborn and not at all moldable or bendable. And then in another sense, we have a tendency to be self-glorifying and build monuments to ourselves in our own life and wanting everybody else to see how great and grand we are. We have hearts of stone by nature. We're not open to God and to what He wants to do in our lives or what He wants to make of us. Rather, we are obstinate and we are um, self-worshipping and self-promoting. And no matter what we may want to do to change that, and no matter how we try to chip away, chip away at that stony facade that we have, it just doesn't seem to work, does it? You know how exhausting that is to spend 
uh, years of your life knowing you need to change, recognizing how rocky you are in either of the senses that I provided, you know how rocky you are, you know how sharp your edges are, you know how prone to self-exaltation and self-glorying you are, but no matter what you try to do, it doesn't seem to change it. And you can have the biggest, sharpest chisel that you can find, and you go to work, and it doesn't seem to even make a dent sometimes. Is that your experience? Has that been your experience? Of course it has. That's why we need intervention beyond ourselves and outside of ourselves. You can't do it. You can't change your own heart. No matter how much you want to, no matter how much you may try to, you can't chip away at the Mount Everest level of mountain that is in your heart and in my heart. I can't do it either. We have to, we, we have, to have help and a power beyond ourselves and beyond anyone else. I mean, I can't change your heart of stone any more than you can change mine. I can't give you a heart of, of malleable, moldable flesh in place of that bedrock stone that you have. And you can't do that for me either. And by the way, the, the, the heart of flesh that is promised here is not in the sinful, carnal sense. That's not what God is saying. He's saying, I'm going to remove the carnal aspect of your stony heart and stony flesh, and I'm going to give you tender flesh, moldable, malleable flesh in its place that I can shape and form and transform into what it needs to be. You can't do that for yourself. And I can't do that for you or for me. New heart and a new spirit. It's what God promises to do. And it's what He will do with every single person that, that comes to His Son. It's a promised, assured reality. The question is, are you, are you cooperating with that? Are you participating in His work of, of replacing the heart of stone with that heart of flesh that He can mold and, and make and shape? Are you allowing Him? Are you yielding to that happening in your life? Are you getting out of the way? Or are you resisting even that work that He's promised to do? That's the question that you have to ask. It's not, can God do it? It's not even, will He do it? Both of those answers are yes, emphatically yes. The question is, are you allowing Him to? Are you participating in that work? And let's be honest about something else. This is painful work. It's a painful process. It is not comfortable to have God taking His chisel, as it were, and chipping away at your heart of stone to replace a heart of tender, uh, clean flesh. It hurts. And we don't like things that hurt. We don't like pain. We don't like discomfort. We don't like inconvenience. But the pain of the, the process of God replacing our heart of stone with flesh is absolutely essential. We will never change otherwise. We'll never have a victorious Christian experience unless He does that painful but necessary work. We need to be open to that and willing for that to happen. 
I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. What this tells us is that God doesn't simply reset our heart. He replaces it. Sometimes I think that's how we view the, the sanctification process. I think that's how we, sometimes we view what salvation is, like it's a reset. We just hit reset and we get a restart. You know, like you have to sometimes reboot your computer to get it to do what you want it to do. It's not working right, so you reboot it. You, you, your, your electronics of some type aren't working the way they need to and that you want them to, so you do a reset. How many times have you had uh, your iPhone and, and it's, uh, it's supposed to be, you know, this marvel of technology, and yet you can't get it to do the simplest thing? And how often have you had to reset the whole thing back to factory settings? That's not how salvation works, people. When you come to Jesus Christ, He doesn't just simply reset your old heart. He replaces your heart. He gives you a total heart replacement. We're talking about heart surgery here with a transplant. Not from someone else that is in the same situation you're in. It's a transplant of a heart that only He can provide. God doesn't reset our heart. He replaces it. And that is exactly what we need. That's exactly what we need. Because as Jeremiah 17.9 tells us, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? In other words, who can fathom, who can comprehend the depths of depravity of the human heart? The answer is no one can. No one can really finally fully grasp how wicked our hearts are, naturally speaking, before we come to Christ, before we get this new heart and new spirit. There is no end to the depths of depravity and wickedness and vileness of the human heart. It's deceitful above all else. It's desperately sick, desperately wicked, bent toward sin completely and constantly. It's why the the whole philosophy of just listen to your heart. Just look inward and just follow your heart. That's a lie from hell. It's satanic in every way, in every essence, that, that mindset and that philosophy. Don't listen to your heart. That's the worst thing you could ever do. Don't follow your heart. It will lead you straight to hell. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Don't listen to your sinful, carnal, stone-like heart. No. Allow God to replace your heart. Allow Him to shape your heart. Allow Him to lead your heart. Then, then and only then, can you follow your heart. If your heart's being led by Him. You, you see that? The only time you should safely follow or listen to your heart is is when it's being shaped by Him. It's yielded to Him. It reflects His heart. A Sunday school teacher once asked a little girl in her class, do you think you have a new heart? Yes, I know so, she replied. Well, what makes you so sure? Asked the teacher. 
The girl responded simply and emphatically, because I love the things I used to hate, and I hate what I used to love. That's what will always define anyone that has been given a new heart by God. That will always be true of everyone that has truly been given a new heart by God. Is that true of you today? That's the question you have to ask. Is that true of me? Do I... Do I love the things I used to hate? And do I hate what I used to love? I'm not saying perfectly, but is it a little bit more? I mean, is it incrementally becoming like that? Are you incrementally, slowly but surely, loving what you used to hate and hating what you used to love? Is that what is true of you today? If so, then rejoice and there's, there's your affirmation that you are indeed one who has been given a new heart. Let me stress again, I'm not saying perfectly that will not happen this side of eternity. Not until we are in eternity with the one who gave us the new heart can we say that that's 100% true. But it should be getting more and more true every single day. It should be increasingly true. You should be able to look back on 2023 at the end of, of this you know, as this year goes forward, and you should be able to say the same thing about this year as you get to the end of this year, that I am more like that than I was before. That I, I, in greater ways, love what I used to hate and hate what I used to love. That that's more true of me now than it was then. And every day that should be getting more and more true. It's sanctification. It's a process. It's that moldable heart that's continually being molded after the very heart of God. You know, Psalm 37.4, it's one of the most misunderstood verses and the one that gets taken out of context so, so often and so horribly. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And people take that and like, woohoo! All right, God, I delight in you. Where's my beamer? I delight in you. Where's this? I really, I really desire this, and I'm delighting in you. So, hey, there's your promise. No. Delight yourself in the Lord means in who and what He is. That He is your treasure. That He is the source of all of your fulfillment. All of your satisfaction. That you're aiming toward Him and your heart is becoming like His heart. Then, yes, He will give you the desires of your heart because your heart is is in sync with His. And so what He desires, you will desire. See how that works? That's what we're talking about here. That's what God does by giving you a new heart. A new heart and a new spirit. And that's what will always, always, always will define anybody that has come to Christ and been given that new heart by God. And the Spirit of God continues to make it new continually, increasingly. It's a, it's a process. But it starts the moment you come to Christ. And as good as that is, as great as this is, and this is great news, what a, what a reality this is. But wait, there's more. And that's what God does, right? He does this great thing and He makes this, this great reality true of you and then, then He just keeps doing more. Just like those really annoying infomercials, you know, when they give you this great life-changing product and then they always say, but wait, there's more. You know, well, there really is more. 
Uh, look at verse 27, Ezekiel 36, 27. Not only does God not reset our heart, he replaces it, but uh, we're going to see we're going to see that God gives us what we need to do what he commands. God gives us what we need to do what he commands. Ezekiel 36, 27. So he, he promises, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I'm going to remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Then verse 27, and it makes the previous verse even that much, that much better. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you. That's, that's the Holy Spirit. That's God the Holy Spirit. So you have, you have God the Father promising to give you God the Holy Spirit. I will put my spirit within you and cause you. You notice that? Cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to do my judgments. Oh, church, that is just magnificent news. God gives us what we need to do what He commands. He doesn't say, here's all my statutes, here's all my commands, here's all my my, uh, judgments, now go and do it, and you better do it right. He says, here's my statutes, here's my commands, here's my principles, here's the life I want you to live, and I know you can't do this on your own, I know you are powerless in yourself, so I'm giving you my very spirit and all of his power to make sure you are, are able to do that. (laughs) Philippians 2.13 reminds us of that. It's not just an Old Testament thing. Philippians 2.13, Paul says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That means that it is God Himself, through God the Holy Spirit, that is in us to give us both the desire to do what is right, and the follow-through. So God says, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to be. Here's how I want you to live. And you are powerless to do that on your own, so I'm giving you all the power you could ever need. I'm giving you myself. And I'm not going to just make it possible for you to do these righteous things and live righteously. I'm actually going to give you the desire to do that. I'm going to give you the want to, and the follow-through. Isn't that glorious? I mean, that's, that's not only is that great news, isn't that freeing? Isn't that freeing? That, that it's not up to you, that you don't have to depend on your own feeble, frail humanity to get this right. It's one more thing that's unique to Christianity. No other world philosophy, no other world religion promises this. No other system of belief out there says, here's the standard you're supposed to live according to, and the one who sets that standard is giving you himself and all of his power to make sure you can do it. No other religion comes close to promising that. Every other belief system says, Here's the standard. You better work really hard. You better keep trying. You better put in more effort. And if you come up short, oh well, sad to be you. 
This is another beautiful facet of the diamond that is the gospel. Because only the gospel says there is a God who made humanity, who allowed humanity to choose something other than Him, rebel against Him, who allowed them to fall from glory, but who immediately put in a plan to redeem and restore that humanity, to bring them back to Himself at the cost of the life of His only Son, and then gives His very Spirit to enable them to want to please Him and live for Him and the ability to do it. That's, that's the diamond that is the Gospel. And you're not going to find it anywhere else. A new heart and a new spirit. God that gave us that new heart and that new spirit also giving us what we need to apply that new heart and apply that new spirit and live the way He has called us to live. But let's go deeper. Because there's, there's even more to it than that. So let's go deeper with this incredible good news and, and this, this multifaceted diamond that we call the gospel. This new heart, new spirit, and, and what all that means and the implications and what God had to do to give us that. And There's just so much more to it. And, and we could be here a lot longer than what we're even going to do as we do go deeper. Uh, but let's, let's at least go a little bit deeper below the surface of what we just read. Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 6. Draw your attention there. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 6. And this is, again, this is going deeper. This is going deeper with the concept of that new heart, new spirit that we just read in the previous chapter. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 6. The hand of Yahweh was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of Yahweh and caused me to rest in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them all around, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. They'd been dead a long time. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord Yahweh, you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Lord Yahweh to these bones, Behold, I will cause, I will cause. Do you notice that? I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you and make flesh come up upon you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you that you may come alive, and you will know that I am Yahweh. This is life where life did not exist. Life from death. Something only God can do. Something only God does do. This, this whole concept and reality of God giving us a, a new heart and a new spirit, what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that we started off today by looking at, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Church, listen, all of that is just as miraculous 
as the original creation was. When God made everything out of nothing. Genesis 1, 1 through 3. There was nothing. There was nothing called earth. There was nothing called the world. There was nothing called the universe. And then God said, let there be. And there was. There was just darkness. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the darkness. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Light shone through the darkness. That's exactly what happens in the life of everybody who comes to Christ. And really, this is more miraculous even than creation because with creation, there was nothing and then there was everything. There was nothing bad. There was, just, there was nothing at all. And then God created everything good. Nothing bad and everything became good. With humanity, we're everything bad, nothing good, and God makes us good. He takes the, the darkness, the depth of the darkness of our soul and our heart that Jeremiah 17.9 says nobody can understand how vast the darkness and depravity of the human heart is. He takes all of that and overcomes it, shines the light of the glory of Christ in and through it, and the darkness does not overcome it, and we are changed and made new by His Spirit. So it's even a greater miracle what happens with the new birth than what happened even in creation. Life from death. Breath where there is no breath. Movement where there is no movement. And this beautiful picture in Ezekiel 37, um, it's by no means just an Old Testament picture. And it's not just an an Old Testament promise. It's a New Testament and real-time reality. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. I'm going to have you look at that with me. Let's go over there. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. We're going to see that what Ezekiel saw in that vision and what God did there and what he illustrated, that no matter how dead you are spiritually, I can make you alive anew and again. No matter what your past is, I can make you new. I can give you a new, bright, present, and a a strong, uh, unchanging future. No matter what you've done, I can make you something else. No matter who you were, I can make you what you are going to be in me. All of those those promises that were were pictured in the the dead bones coming to life, it's a New Testament and a real-time, right-now reality. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-7. through Paul accurately diagnoses all of humanity. This is true of every single one of us. You know, the, the difference between a, a sinner and a saint is that a saint is just someone who recognizes how sinful they are and how they have no hope in themselves of being anything else, so they come to Christ and He makes them new. That's the only difference. So this, this is true of all of us. Paul says, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You weren't seeking God you weren't okay, you weren't almost there, you weren't mostly good. No, you were all the way dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, 
also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were all helpless and hopeless. There is no way we could have made ourselves right with God. There's no way we could save ourselves. We couldn't choose righteousness. We couldn't choose holiness. We were constantly and completely at the mercy of our own sinful flesh, obeying and fulfilling every fleshly desire. We couldn't do anything but sin. And that's the predicament of every human being apart from Christ. They cannot not sin. Verse 4. But God. But God. When you compare that with what Paul just said in the first three verses, there is not a greater, more glorious contrast in all of the Bible. You were this, you were this, you were this. This was true of you. You were hopeless, you were helpless, you were broken, you were dead. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of His great love. Not because you were so loving toward Him. Because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace. Not something you deserved or could ever earn. And he continues. There's, here's another, but wait, there's more. Verse 6. So he made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you know what that means? That you, you were seated with him in heavenly places? Where is Jesus seated? Right hand of the Father. A place of honor a place of royalty, a place of dignity, a place of holiness and righteousness. And guess who's there with Him? You and me, though we were dead. And though here in this present reality and in this skin, though we are still so selfish and sinful and still so prone to having a stony heart, despite that, We're still seated in the heavenlies as sure as I am before you. Praise the Lord. Why did He do that? Why? What was the purpose? Verse 7 tells us. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus. He did it so that we would be a monument, not to ourselves, but to Him, to His glory, to His grace, to His mercy, to a salvation that no one else can provide and that no one else can promise. So what does all this mean for us practically? Let's bring it all down. What does this mean for us practically? What impact should this really make in our day-to-day experience? What does this mean for us experientially? How do we experience the richness of all that truth that we've just read together, heard together? 
It means we have the freedom to change. You want to be new? Of course you do. Who doesn't want to be new? Who doesn't recognize the mess that that we are? Who doesn't feel the need to be more? Of course. That's why people make New New Year's resolutions. It means we have the freedom to change. It means we have the ability to be made new. And it means we have the responsibility. Not only do we have the freedom to change and to be made new, we have the responsibility to resist our flesh and its sinful desires because of what's been done for us, because of what's been made true of us, and the cost at which it was given. We have the responsibility to resist the flesh and its sinful desires. Romans 8, 12-13 tells us this. Romans 8, 12-13, Paul says, So then, brothers, we are under obligation not to the flesh. See, there's your freedom. There's your release. You've been given a new heart and a new spirit that can choose not to sin. You've been given a new heart and a new spirit that can be molded and and shaped by the Spirit of God in you. You've been given a new spirit that resonates with and tracks with the Spirit of God who gives you both the want to and the follow through. So then, brothers, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit... See, there's your hope. There's your hope. There's your your power source. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, the sinful, stone-hearted body, you will live. Oh, church, the good news is that we don't need to resolve to do better. We don't need to resolve to do better. We need to live in the new heart and the new spirit that God provides. We don't need to resolve to do better. We need to live day in, day out. No, no, moment in, moment out. This grouping of five minutes and then the next five minutes. We need to live in the new heart and the new spirit that God provides. That's what we need to aim for and strive for in this new year. Are you, are you ready to do that? Let's do that. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your Word that shows us all that we have in You and from You. Thank You that it shows us who and what we really are. You don't give us some psychobabble in Your Word. You don't give us false assurances. You don't tell us everything's okay when it's completely not. You tell us, here's your predicament. Here's your situation. And and it is bad. It's hopeless. It's helpless. You are hopeless. You are helpless in yourself. But Father, You don't stop there. From page after page, from the very beginning of our story, when Adam and Eve sinned and ushered in all of the disaster that we know as humanity, you were there. And you intervened. 
And you already, before the world began, you already had the plan in place to redeem and restore what Adam and Eve wrecked and ruined. And the heart that is hopeless in ourself can be made new in you. And you gave us your Son to make that happen. And you give us your Spirit to help us continually to have the heart of stone chipped away. Thank you. Thank you. Help us to walk and live in and by your Spirit and to constantly be made new every day. We pray all of this with praise. In Jesus' name, amen.